Good morning, Edge Church. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever would believe in him will have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. My name is Neil, and I'm one of the pastors here at The Edge. And we are concluding our series called Empowered today. It's been from the book of Acts. But one of the things that we want to do is to make sure that you know not just the storyline uh, of the book of Acts. We want you to know the heart of God, the one who wrote this entire script that we found ourselves in. We are part of the story of God. And the story of God is one of love and of longing to be with the people that he made. And the book of Acts is a demonstration of the continued grace of God in his pursuit of those who are far off from him, but might be made near once again through the bridge known as the Son Jesus, the one and only Son of God. While we see the church grow and expand from town to town and from city to city, from Jew to Gentile, to every kind of people, young and old, big or small, rich or poor, we must keep in mind that this whole design of God was never about bigger buildings. It was never about organization. It was never about money-making ventures. It was always, and it still is, about the hearts of people and God's passionate and tenacious pursuit of them and of us. If you have your Bible with you, open it to Acts chapter 12, and we're going to be focused today on verses 1 through 19. Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 19. If you need to catch up on this series, if you've missed some messages in the series, or if you just want to uh, watch some other sermons that we've preached um, over the months, please go to the Edge Church Aurora YouTube channel. Last week, Brandy spoke on Acts chapter 11, and she focused on the church um, at Antioch, which was the very first church that was made up of Gentiles. Remember, Gentiles are all, they're non-Jews. That's all it meant. It's basically Jews and then everybody else, and everybody else fell in the Gentile category. And, and the creation of a church that was based on, on Gentile believers, it would have caused significant upset to the Jewish leaders at the time, and even some troubles internally for some of the Jewish converts to Christianity. But we have to go back to what the heart of God is. It's always been this way and always will be. For God so loved the world, and every single person is included in that. Let's take a moment to pray and just ask the Lord to speak. God, you are good. You pursue us and you love us. We thank you for that. And we pray that today you would open our eyes to all the things that you want us to see. Have your way in us today, Jesus. Amen. Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 19. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. 
When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. This was the full week commemorating Passover. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to be uh, Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked on the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. There's a lot there. So let's start, though, with, with a little bit of context. Always important to, to have a little context to understand the story more fully. So this King Herod that, that we're talking about in this story is not the King Herod of Jesus' birth. Remember who he was. He was the one who was so threatened by this, this one who was known as the newborn king that he had all the boys aged two and under in Bethlehem and in the region killed so that he might eliminate any threats to his throne. This is a very, very insecure, dangerous, dangerous leader. So this Herod that we're, that we're reading about in Acts 12, this is not the same king, but the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree because King Herod in Acts 12 is the grandson of the first King Herod that we read about in the Gospels. He also definitely got the malicious and murderous heart of his grandfather. So King Herod, uh, this more current one, was known to balance his standing with between the occupying Romans and the Jewish leaders. He basically was a really good politician who got both sides to really, really like him. So he derived his power from being able to be a really good politician. So he probably would have been a pretty good politician today, too. The Jewish leaders were becoming more and more threatened by the spreading influence of, of the story of Jesus and, and what the Spirit was doing in, in moving uh, through Jesus and through the world. But they were getting particularly amped up. The Jewish leaders were really getting upset as the lowest rung of society, the Gentiles, all non-Jews, 
they, they were becoming converts to Christianity and even becoming like foundational for the formation of the church, like at Antioch. So King Herod knew that the Jewish leaders were getting upset and he knew that he needed to play towards them. He needed to get their favor. So he had James beheaded. He had an apostle beheaded. And this worked so well, Herod realized, like, the Jewish leaders were thrilled about this. So in his court of public opinion, he recognized that this was a good move. So he had Peter arrested too, and he planned to do the same thing to Peter after Passover. He didn't want to do it during Passover because it would have upset the Jews at that time. He also knew that he had to lock Peter down because back in Acts chapter 5, Peter had escaped. So he, he wanted no chance of escape. So he had four squads of four soldiers guarding him, and there were two soldiers locked to Peter, like literally handcuffed, chained to Peter at all times. Of course, there was a miraculous escape that we just read about, and that is amazing because God is a rescuer, and he delivers his people, and that fits the overarching narrative and theme of this powerful movement of the Spirit of God that we expect miraculous things to happen because God intervenes in the world and in the lives of his children. But if you look just a little bit below the surface, there is so much more going on than just that. And I believe that if today you are here and you feel like you cannot have someone put more expectations on you to, to do better or be better, then I think this message has the potential to breathe some new life into you this morning. Here's the first idea that I want us to take a look at as we look to see like what this has to do with our lives here in Chicagoland in 2023. Great faith looks like obedience to God rather than trusting for outcomes. Let me say that again. Great faith looks like obedience to God rather than trusting for outcomes. So surely faith looks like trusting God, right? Like we have to trust God a certain amount. And, and, and that's true. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, it tells us that without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to God must believe that he exists and that he also rewards those who earnestly seek him. But when I think of faith and great faith in particular, and I'm guessing you too, many of us sort of like conjure up these images of these, these people that do heroic things, stepping into situations where all the odds are against them. But somehow these characters were, were unwavering in their faith and they were strong and they never doubted and, and they beat the odds because of that faith, right? That's what I tend to think of when I think about heroes of the faith, the people that just they just had this intrinsic quality about them and they were so confident in God and there was never a doubt even though all the odds were against them. But that is not the overall witness of scripture. It's not. Most stories in scripture point to people that are very evidently fallible. We're all fallible, but these stories in scripture point to people that have weaknesses and they took steps towards God in fear and uncertainty and, and this sense of trepidation about the outcome, and still to the best of their abilities, trusting, entrusting themselves to the person of God. The reality is there are no heroes in this passage. Peter was locked up, and he was very likely convinced that he was going to die soon. 
This was his second time being locked up. And yes, he was freed the first time, so you might think, well, surely he believes he's going to be freed again. But we don't see that evidenced in the scripture. And, and we see that, that James had just been beheaded, so Peter very likely had just sort of like given himself over to God and said, okay, I guess it's just going to happen soon, like it did with James. We don't see anything about him staying up all night and, and praying. No, he was asleep in his cell, chained to jailers. So you could say, well, he had peace. Well, probably true. And when an angel of the Lord came to rescue Peter, it took him a long time. It took Peter a really long time to even grasp what was happening. As a matter of fact, like most of this story where Peter is encountering this angel, Peter is just thinking it's a vision. Like basically it's like a, a dream that comes from deep sleep. It, do you ever sleep really well and you're like, man, that was a wild night of dreams. And, and you feel rested when you wake up. Well, Peter was thinking it was a dream basically. And it wasn't until he was a block or so away out of the jail down the street and the angel left him that he realized that this was actually more than a dream. He was outside of the jail and then it dawned on him. It took all of this for it to dawn on him that God had freed him. Maybe, maybe we have, <clears throat> maybe we have what it takes to have faith like that. That doesn't sound too heroic. That sounds pretty ordinary, actually, doesn't it? It sounds like real people with real struggles and real struggles in belief and real struggles in faith. I'm real and you guys are all real who are watching this. I think we qualify for this kind of faith. I think we actually all have uh, the qualifications to grab a hold of this sort of faith. This is the kind of faith that isn't sure about the result, but continues to walk in obedience to what God has revealed um, in what he's doing in our lives. And we're doing our best with fear often, with nervousness almost all the time of just saying, yes, Lord, this is scary, but I'm just going to say yes to what I believe you've put in front of me. And sometimes even wondering if it's all just a dream. But what about the church? I mean, surely the church that was praying for them, they, they had super faith, right? It says that they were praying earnestly. That's what scripture says. So we're not taken away from scripture. So surely they were extra faith-filled. But were they? Were they convinced that if they named what they wanted and claimed it in faith, that Peter would be set free on the basis of their belief? Hardly. When Peter went to the door to show them their answered prayer, when he made his way to, to Mary's house, live and in living color, we're told that only the servant believed because the servant saw Peter. She was so shocked, though, she left him at the door knocking and gave the news to his friends. But the prayer warriors didn't believe it. They, they, they didn't even believe it. They thought it was a ghost or his guardian angel or something. We're not, we don't know exactly what that means, but they didn't believe it. They said, you are crazy. You are out of your mind to believe that Peter was set free. How many times have you prayed for something and then you got it? And if you're being real, you were pretty sure you weren't going to get it. And you're just really glad that you did. Yep. I've had that kind of faith too. Plenty of times I've prayed for things and I'm just like, yeah, I'm asking the Lord for this, but I kind of doubt it's going to happen if I'm being real. Faith isn't just heroic. It's not just things that look incredible. Faith is learning to live in obedience to what God has said in each step, no matter how nervous, no matter how anxious, no matter how much fear and trepidation that you have. You have enough faith. 
and, and some of you are probably listening. You hear that and you're like, no, you don't know me. Like, I don't, I don't have enough faith for anything. But as followers of Jesus, if you are a follower of Jesus, you have been granted different measures of faith, but you do have all that you need. Romans chapter 12, verse 3, it says, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. Jesus shows up in the lives of those who struggle with faith and belief. And guess how many people that is? That's all of them. Just like the man in, in the Gospel of Mark chapter 9 who, who um, encountered Jesus and he told Jesus about his son who needed to be healed, but he wasn't really sure if Jesus could do it. And he, and he basically said it. And Jesus said, you're not sure if I can heal him? Jesus sort of like was like, hey, do you not recognize who I am? I, I'm the, the creator of all things. I can do it. And I love the man's response. He didn't deny it, but he, he reached for more. Mark chapter 9, verse 24, the man said to Jesus, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Man, that's a prayer that I can say that I've prayed many times. Lord, I am doing my best to hold on to what I, I believe that you want to do in my life. Help me to let go of unbelief and help me to grab a hold of belief. <clears throat> We're told Jesus healed him. And that means that imperfect faith meets the healer. And you don't have to have perfect faith to do it. You don't have to be perfect because you're not. You don't have to be a hero. You're not one. You have to trust the only one who is, and that is Jesus. Here's our second idea, the simplest one of all. Just pray. Just pray. That's kind of evident. Like we know as Christians, like whether we do it a lot or not, like, yeah, we're, we're supposed to pray. Read your Bible, pray every day and you'll grow, grow, grow. Yeah. So you have to read your Bible. You have to pray. These are things that we should do. But the bottom line in this story that we have found ourselves in is that we were created by the creator and we need his help and we need his relational connection. And the way that we access that is by calling on him, just like we do in any relationship. You can't actually be in a relationship with someone without communication. And there are a whole bunch of people out there that are like, yep, tell my husband that because he seems to think we can be. You know, guys, girls, everybody, we all need to communicate to be in relationship with each other. And it's no different than the relationship with God. We need to call on him. In my life, prayer has often been quite a mysterious thing. Right when I feel like I've sort of figured it all out, something happens and it sort of like shifts the whole paradigm. I've had God answer my prayers in amazing and miraculous ways. I have also prayed for years at a time and felt like God had sort of turned his back on answering anything that I was praying about. I have seen healings and I've seen deaths and people have both prayed in those situations. So I've wrestled with this. I've prayed thy will be done kind of prayers where I sort of let it go because I'm pretty sure he's not going to answer the way I want. I prayed that kind of prayers and I prayed charismatic prayers that sound more like declarations than they do questions or conversation and seeking. And what I see in this story is that how we say what we say in our prayers or even how confident we are that, that God will answer in the way that we're asking, that makes sense. Uh, it matters a whole lot less than just simply praying because Jesus wants to be connected to us. He wants us to pray. 
He just wants us to come to him and pray. And that's what the church did for Peter. When Peter was locked up, the church gathered and they prayed. And God answered those prayers. But those prayers were not prayed in great confidence that God was going to free Peter. We know that because of how shocked they were by God's answer. But they were faithful to pray because that's what the church is supposed to do. We are called to be dependent on the Lord. And the way that we can show, one way that we can demonstrate dependence is by asking him into every area of our lives. God's people are always to acknowledge our dependence on him because we need him in all things and in all ways in our lives. In Luke chapter 18, um, Jesus uh, shared a parable of a persistent widow. And it was a woman who who went to a judge that was known as being evil. This was a, a bad guy. Yet she was asking a judge for justice. And finally, her persistence paid off. And this is what Jesus said about it. Luke 18, verses 7 and 8. He said, And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. I love that. I love that. Whatever you're facing, when you just continue to call on God, he will see that you're going to get justice and get it quickly. Tony Evans, uh, one of my favorite uh, preachers, describes prayer like this. He said, prayer is the divinely authorized method for accessing heavenly authority for earthly intervention. Do you see how it all connects? God wants this this connection so that he can move in our lives. Prayer is the divinely authorized method for accessing heavenly authority for earthly intervention. And I pray that God would intervene in every single area of your lives as you seek him. And that leads us to our final point today. We will thrive in this life only when we entrust all our days to their author. That sounds kind of wordy, but we'll get into it. We'll thrive in this life only when we entrust all of our days to their author. God is the author of all of our days. When we entrust, when we entrust our life to him and all of our days, then we'll actually start to thrive. The, the reality is we're going to have disappointments in life. And the reality also from my experience has been we are going to have disappointments in how God answers our prayers. It just happens. Is he still good when bad things happen? It's a big question. Almost any time there's a natural disaster, um, you'll see someone being interviewed and the person uh, will share that the only reason they survived, all these other people died, the only reason they survived was by the grace of God and that God is good. I'm always a little bit thrown by that because I do believe that's likely true, that, that God's grace somehow shielded that person from, from death. But where does that leave the ones who don't make it? Where does that leave all the others who didn't receive the grace of God? It's, it, you see the wrestle. Were those people forsaken by God or is there actually something else happening? Is God still good when we get sick or hurt or when people die that we've prayed for? I know the right theological answers, but, but the Lord is continuing to work these things out in me and, and very practically as I journey through life with him. And I'm pretty confident that's happening with you too. The truth is life has all kinds of ups and downs. Great peaks and also, sadly, utterly despairing valleys. We'd be theologically dishonest to only celebrate the miraculous deliverance of Peter and then fail to address the all-too-human experience of the sadness of the murder of James. What do we do with this? Is God still good when he doesn't give us what we want? Is he still good when he doesn't save us from sickness or death or tragedy? 
I encourage you today to dive into that question as honestly as possible. Resist trying to code it with theological answers that you know but have not experienced. Stare right into the saddest and most disappointing moments of your lives and see what is still there. There's a man who did this in the Bible, and his name is synonymous with pain and discouragement and disappointment and patience. His name is Job, and he made it through the darkest nights of his soul with his faith intact. Now, his wife struggled a little bit more in a different way. His wife is known for responding to all the pain of their trials by saying something that maybe you've thought or maybe you've said. Why don't you just curse God and die? That's how she responded to the pain that was brought on them. And uh, Job's response shows that in his life, he did not place himself as the main character of the story, but he knew that God was. Job chapter 2, verse 10, uh, it says, Job replied, you are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we not accept good from God and not trouble? Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? And in one of the most famous quotes of the entire Bible, Job revealed his view of life and of God. In Job chapter 1, verse 21, he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Job knew something that all of us really need to, to get to on the journey of life, is that no matter what happens, God is still good, and God still can be trusted. He can be trusted with our days on earth regardless of the outcomes, even in the painful disappointments. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, very familiar verse to, to mo most people who are Christians. It says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. In my life since becoming a Christian, I, I can say that I have wrestled with plenty of issues of faith. I still do. And I, I wonder often what God is up to in my life. But every single time that I start to move enough off course, that I sort of wonder, maybe you've been here before, maybe you will be one day. You start to wonder, is God good? When, when the goodness of God, the image of the goodness of God that I have is threatened, it's shaken in my life, I'm almost every single time reminded of the cross. And when I'm reminded of the cross where Jesus bled and died for me, and he saved me from, from, from death, and he offers me eternity, I realize once again just how good he is. And I want to end today in the exact way that we began. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. He is good, and he is for you, and he is with you. We like to leave you with questions to consider in your house churches or however you gather this week. Here's the first question. What is God speaking to you today in this message? The second one is share a personal example of when persistent prayer made a significant impact in your life. And finally, share a time when you were disappointed in God's answer to your prayers. What helped you move out of that space? May God bless you, and we'll see you next week.